Hello, beautiful people. You are listening to the Communal Table Podcast, part of Food & Wine Pro. I'm your host, Kat Kinsman, Senior Editor at Food & Wine. As per usual, I am recording remotely with uh, my guests during these pandemic times. And today I was lucky enough to get Chef Jenny Dorsey from her home in Los Angeles. Um, She's a trained chef who has been using the medium of food for a long time to really foment discussions around vulnerability and discomfort, uh, frankly, and doing it in really innovative and artistic ways. And uh, she has developed a project called Studio Atau that is doing really vital work right now to have discussions with people around issues that are coming up in the culture in general and especially in food and food media around identity and uh, scarcity mentality and appropriation and tokenization and all these words that probably make a lot of people nervous but they're really the gateway toward understanding better and doing better and making a more equitable playing field for uh, people who want to have food discussions and really want to be able to connect through food. So welcome, Jenny Dorsey. Jenny, thank you so much for making time today on a, I just set the scene, uh, a sweltering Friday in <laughs> July. I don't know. You're in LA, right? Yes, like, I am. Okay. And okay, we're going to start off with a tough question. You can answer it however you like. How are you holding up? Uh, yeah, that's the loaded <laughs> question these days, right? Um, I'm doing fairly well. Like I'm uh, in LA. It's been weird since I've been trying to split my time between LA and New York since uh, moving here last year. And obviously haven't been back to New York since COVID hit. So kind of like missing just like my East Coast aspects of my work and my life and my friends. Um, but LA weather, you can't complain. It's beautiful. I'm really fortunate. I have like a little outdoor area. So I've been just trying to, you know, take, do some self-care and, you know, go outside and like sit there for a little bit every day. And does self-care come naturally to you or is that, uh, has that been a learning curve? Self-care, I'm the worst at self-care, so I've been learning (laughs) really hard. (laughs) And I've been trying to learn and actually get into my brain that, like, self-care is not only preventative care, but it's also, like, part of activism. Like, you you can't, like, do anything for other people if you're not also taking care of yourself. But I just don't feel that way. I kind of kind of feel like, you know, first of all, that I should be suffering. I need to be like doing everything, just giving all the time. And Mm -hmm. it always feels like everything that I'm doing or I need, um, it's just like not important. Um, so I've been working through that with therapy and just trying to, you know, be kind to myself and recognize that if I'm not feeling great today, like you're allowed to have a bad day. Oh my gosh. It's so important. And the people I know who are the worst at self-care are the people who do so much work to help other people. And and again, everything you just said, where you feel like you need to you know, be be active and in that mode of helping, like it really, you know, you, you come to think of your own rest as somehow, you know, if, if I'm not doing, then, you know, somebody mm-hmm. else will be suffering as a result mm-hmm. of my inaction. And the, you know, and the thing I keep just trying to tell myself is, you know, we, we, 
we didn't cause all the breaks in the world, you know, yeah. and, you know, like we are all responsible for, you know, some harm and things, but the, you know, the larger systemic things, like we didn't break the world and it's not completely on all of us to fix it in a, in a short period of time. And yeah. you, you got to charge that, that battery back up. And the people I know who are doing the most work are just, you know, I, I have so many texts that I send every day about like, okay, have you, did you get some sleep last night? What do you have planned mm-hmm. for your self care? And mm-hmm. I'm kind of a nag about it, which is maybe really annoying, but <laughs> it's but, so needed. Yeah. And so I want to dive into the work that you are doing uh, at Studio Atel, but uh, let's first say talk a little bit about how you came to do this work, because you are a chef and you have worked in some fancy ass places. And <laughs> I, I want to talk about uh, this, this journey that you have taken because, you know, I was doing my homework on you and you have taken such uh, you know, a, a mighty path to to get there. I want to know how you ended up there. Yeah, I mean, I'm a career changer in food, so definitely, you know, started started in a, in a different place altogether. When I was younger, my dream was like work at Vogue. I wanted to be in fashion, so ended up. Um, I grew up in Seattle, so came to New York and started working in management consulting under uh, fashion and luxury goods and quickly realized that, you know, it was a glamorous title, I suppose, for a 22-year-old to hold, uh, you know, on your LinkedIn page. But I was, like, deeply unhappy with the work that I was doing. I didn't feel very fulfilled. And when I looked up the, you know, the career ladder at the partners that were employing me, I just didn't want that life. And I mean, you know, whatever, their lives are their own thing. But I personally did not feel like there was a lot of joy there because mm-hmm. it was always wrapped up in a lot of material acquisition. It was always about buying more things, comparing what you bought, and then thinking about what you're going to buy next. And, you know, you just cannot fill that hole in your heart with shoes. And that's kind of what I started going into, too, is like I would I was in debt like one month because I bought so much stuff. It was like the only thing that I feel I was getting happiness from at all. Um, So I kind of had like a mental breakdown um, and like was like, I need to do something. But I didn't know what to do. Um, And because I was honestly too cowardly to just quit my job and you know strike out on my own. Um, I applied for business school because I thought it would be a way to get like two years of time to figure it out. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I applied early decision to business school. When I, and when I got in, it was kind of like this weight had finally been lifted on my shoulders. I felt like I was free to do something at least for the nine months or so um, before I started school. So I ended up going to culinary school at the Institute of Culinary Education in New York um, and kind of like I didn't think it would be anything more than like a creative sabbatical. I wasn't really thinking long term at that point. But um, when I actually started culinary school, it just really challenged a lot of the things, a lot of the notions I think I felt so uh, attached to. Like culinary school has plenty of problems. And I've been pretty vocal about that, too. There's a lot of like, you know, like a, uh, in this disproportionate representation on certain cuisines and others and we can get into that. But because the people that I was in school with were also career changers, were people who were taking the evening class, they were older. Like they just taught me a lot about like what I was really looking for in friends. And many times those people didn't need to look like me to really care about me. And many of the people who did look like me, like are, were they really my friends? You know, were we just evaluating each other on these axes for success and wanting to surround ourselves with people that made us look 
good to, to, to who? So the public eye. And so I, I feel like I started doing a lot more just internal searching at that time. And the juxtaposition of graduating culinary school and going straight to business school really like, you know, uh, really like told me um, in every single way that I needed to figure something else out because going back into that business school environment where everyone's kind of like, you know, eyeing each other up and trying to work at that fancy firm. I was like, oh my God, this is not aligned with my values anymore. I guess I didn't really think about what my values were until that point. Um, it's hard so, um, to overcome, really, if, yeah. you've, if you've been surrounded by that and taught nothing but that for, for your life. Like it, it is a really powerful moment to stop and think, what is the thing I actually want and, and value? Who am I doing this for? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I feel so, like we don't actually talk about that ever, even in, you know, um, secondary, like education, we kind of, we find like this routine of work that we do, but what do we ever talk about? Like why we are doing it? I don't, I feel like why isn't that part of the discourse in college? Oh, so much. I was actually thinking about this uh, really weirdly, like within the last week or so and thinking about the time that I put into grad school because I felt like, no, I have to go to grad school. This is what I, mm-hmm. I need to do because familial programming, you know, from, uh-huh. uh, you know, and, and it was like, you know, my, my dad, and my sister, both have doctorates. My mother has a master's, you know, her, uh, you know, her parents both, you know, they were first gen and they really had it, uh, you know, beaten into their heads that they absolutely had to, you know, go and get these degrees and prove themselves. And on my dad's side, you know, people didn't, they were, you know, he came from a family without really much, much means. And, you know, and, mm-hmm. and so his, his doctor, it was, you know, him sort of overcoming some of, I think, some of that want of childhood. But it was really, really like, this is just what you do. And then realizing I was so miserable that whole time. And so <laughs> I was too young to really uh, make the art that I, you know, I went straight from undergrad and, and thinking, um, you know, I, mm-hmm. I if I had given myself a few years, I don't know if I would have gone. I definitely would have made a different work. But, you know, found myself mm-hmm. paying that money, money back later. Really big, expensive yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, also, like, there's so many things that you just, like, can't learn in a, learn like, in a learning environment, which is ironic. You just have to go out to the world. And, I, I mean, I started college early, so I was, like, already a little young. And I feel like I was so naive, but, but I didn't think so. You have this hubris when you're young. You're like, I know everything. <laughs> and I, I learned quickly that I did not know everything. Oh my gosh, I look at like little me, like moving to New York City at 23 when I finished grad school. And I just, I have such empathy for that little dumbass. (laughs) (laughs) And like, you know, could give, you know, a you know, some sort of, you know, elaborate critique on a piece of sculpture, but didn't know basic life skills. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I just want to take her and swaddle her. So, so you, <laughs> so you get into business school and you know, surrounded by this. And so, what is what is that like, you know, emotionally and socially for you uh, during that time? Uh, and are you still cooking during that time? Yeah, I mean, so I I started business school and quickly, like you know, started meeting the people who were into food at business school, and I definitely yeah. made some great friends. I mean, I met my husband at business school. Like, it's not like it was. It was all for nothing, but um, just being in that environment, constantly feeling like, you know, you have to put on a certain face, you have to interact with people a certain way. I just was tired of it. And I've 
constantly thinking about like, how can I get people to interact on a deeper level? So in mm -hmm. its own way, it helped me um, be inspired to like start my first pop-up dinner series, which I started hosting in my apartment. The whole theme was how do we get people to connect on a deeper level? Because I was just very curious on like, what does it take to get someone to open up and talk about, you know, their grandmother, their upbringing, their traumas, maybe not trauma at the first dinner, but like eventually mm -hmm. their trauma. Um, is it like, what is that environment? Is it, what is it predicated on? Is it the food? Is it the drinks? Is it an atmosphere that you can cultivate? You know, how do you literally like uh, distill vulnerability into something that you can actually give to people? I don't know, like that was, those were kind of like, I guess the bigger questions that were floating around um, in my head. And so in a way, business school, I needed it to like get me to the next step. But after a semester, I was miserable. So I ended up leaving. Um, and kind of branching out on my own to just figure out what I wanted to do. Um, one of the, I guess the good and bad things is I had already paid for, like you had paid for so much of business school. I had all this debt. So I was feeling like, no, I don't want to say free, but I was like, well, I have a lot of debt anyway. So what's a few more months of like taking unpaid internships? I guess like it just didn't seem as sizable as like, oh God, I have this mountain of debt. Um, so I did feel like, okay, I might as well take some new internship opportunities and see what I like. So I just tried to find everything that I wasn't familiar with, um, doing like some food PR. Um, I worked at a barista because I'm really interested in learning about that. Like um, I, the, my funniest uh, job was I sold juice door to door for some Silicon Valley VCs, like literally showed up with a cooler and gave them green juice. And these are like the VCs that people spend years trying to pitch and all the partners were there just chilling in their break room, drinking my juice. Like it was just such a surreal situation. These like billionaires. And then I went home um, and I told my husband and he was like, what? Like, you why a capital? And I was like, oh yeah, you know, they were telling me about like their mom and this juice. Like it was, just, it was a strange thing in my time. But I learned, I learned a lot about what I did like and what I didn't like very quickly, which I think was like a good and valuable learning lesson, um, even though I wasn't getting paid and slowly like was able to at least narrow down that I wanted to do something more specifically like food related. So like not on the, you know, press side necessarily. I wanted to get my, be in the kitchen, have something in the kitchen and end up taking a research and development job at La Pan Quotidian, um, which is in New York and LA mm -hmm. and a couple other cities. Um, loved the work, found it very interesting, really didn't like the company um, for various reasons. And so at that point, tried to kind of branch out and do my own consulting, which was like, again, I think that's the hubris of being young. I don't know if I'd be like, oh, yeah, I have one full time job and now I'm going to be a freelance consultant. Like, I don't think I would do that now. But at the time, I thought it was a great idea. And I was really excited that my, my, that boyfriend, now husband, was like, could help support you as I figured it out. Well, you know, with that, it's, I, I, I sort of developed this strategy a while back, and I say this to friends, where I, in those, those sort of moments where I have needed some hubris, I channel my <laughs> Irv frat boy, who I have <laughs> named. I've named him Chet, and because I'm like, like it would never occur to Chet that someone wouldn't give him exactly what he wanted. Yeah, so yeah. why not? 
ask for that thing. And so I've yep. like sort of done this, uh, you know, like in, in workplaces with friends and stuff and ask people like women specifically to yep. say like, who is their inner frat boy? Give him a name and mm-hmm. have him ask for the thing because like, who would say no to church? Chat yeah. answers, so why would you give it to church? <laughs> I was actually like, I, I spoke at something last year and they gave me like a finance bro vest. So sometimes I've had the vest with me and made them put it on and be like, like do that. Channel that energy. Oh my God. So I have a name for my inner critic, but I don't have a name for my inner like hubris. So that's a great idea. <laughs> well, it's, it's a combo of that. And then also I used to be a professional dominatrix uh, and it was Mr. Yeah, it was Mistress Cherry. And when I really need her, I can summon Mistress Cherry up to the front and just like, you know, sort of think like, okay, I'm going to take control of this situation. Really okay. works well for people uh, when I need something from somebody on a, a writer on a deadline. <laughs> like, and I only actually only do it to white dudes. <laughs> like, yeah. I. It, it, comes, it comes in very handy. Um, but I'm thinking of what you were saying, you were in these break rooms and stuff, like, that's such an interesting access because uh, like food can let you kind of slip into some of these spaces that are otherwise pretty gated. Mm-hmm. And it is also very interesting to see like what position um, I held in food and how that, how people would interact with me. Like the way people yeah. interacted with me when I was just being a barista is very different from when I was like working in food PR or social media. And it's almost like, kind of that comes with the types of people that tend to hold those roles and our perception of them. And I don't feel like I really understood it at the time. It was just something I kind of noticed in the back of my head. But now years mm-hmm. later, looking back, it's like, oh, that makes a lot of sense of like, who's making money in the food industry? Why is that? Like, how is money being distributed? You know, all, all of those things. Yeah, it's, it's very telling. Like, why, who we d- decide is like worthy in the food industry. Oh my gosh. When you are in a position of service, like being a barista or being, I was a cater waiter and mm-hmm. being treated like the help, you know, uh-huh. and to see how people, oh my gosh. I, I was thinking when I, when I worked as a cashier, when I worked as a cater waiter, you know, uh-huh. when, I, when I worked as uh, you know, office manager, receptionist and stuff, when people sort of automatically erase you because of that system, it's, it's such a valuable position for insight because you can see like oh this is how you really are and how you treat people yeah my most scarring i was like um a hostess for a few hours and like i was doing like a trail as a hostess and um i was at this i don't think it's there anymore it's kind of like an upscale like vegetarian restaurant in um west village and i was just chatting with a woman who happened to be waiting for a takeout order she started talking about how her daughter was accepted into like SUNY Buffalo or something. I don't know, um, some school. And I said, oh, like, that's very lovely. Congratulations. And she stopped. She goes, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I don't mean to offend you because you probably like didn't, you know, like you just like have a high school diploma, right? Jesus. And I was like, what? like at this time, I had already left business school. Like, you know what I mean? And it was just it was just shocking. Um, and these are the things I feel, um, let's say you really unless you're close to someone where that happened to them or you experience it yourself, like my business school friends just don't understand that because they've never had to have people see them in that kind of light. And it's so, it's just a horrible feeling. 
Oh my God. And right now, what people who are you know back at work in restaurants are having to deal with, uh-huh. with that intense abuse from customers, it's, it's just appalling. Oh and we can, oh, and, and yeah. we can, and we can do that. But I, w- I want to um, talk then about how you then, uh, you worked in, in kitchens then. So you were yeah. working in, you know, as a barista and, you know, as a, as a juice vendor and, <laughs> and, all, of, and all, all of these things. And, you know, and you had the culinary training. And then how did you make the move to restaurants? And was that the intent when you were in cooking school? Yeah, I mean, I didn't know what I wanted to do after culinary school, to be honest. I just like knew that food was Food was always the thing that gravitated towards to make me feel safe and comfortable and, you know, like it was just what I did. And so one of the requirements of culinary schools is you have to do an externship. So after doing all these odd jobs, I had to actually make sure I finished my degree. So I went and took an externship um, at a place called Market Table in West Village, which is still there. Mm. And it's a very lovely, like kind of it's like a upscale New American neighborhood restaurant. Worked under a really fantastic chef there um, called David Sandridge. And he, like, I, I feel really lucky that I worked under him as my first chef because I think your first boss in any field kind of, like, most how you see it, whether it's good or bad. And he himself also had a very diverse, like, background. He worked in a, a variety of different things. He started in a different career. He used to be a, a receptionist at EMP before EMP was, like, a wow. big, like really random stuff. And he really encouraged me to just keep exploring and not get hung up on only trying to climb the ladder in the food indi- or in the restaurant industry. And that was like really good for young Jenny to hear, I think, that like other experiences were valid because many times in the restaurant world, it's like no experiences are valid unless it's an experience on the line or on, you know, whatever. Right. Um, so that like I was kind of doing that plus doing some of the other gigs. And then after that, I had the full-time job in R&D, left, and put, like, gave myself this goal of like, okay, I want to go and dodge at different places. I try to do it once a year now. I'm trying to do it like once every two years just to try and like learn different things because every kitchen is different. It's all run very differently. And there's just, there's a lot to, I mean, yes, it's helpful to like find their recipes and like learn how they do things. And there's like little, you know, like little things you pick up along the way. Um, for example, I worked at this place called SPQR in San Francisco, the most streamlined restaurant that I've, I've ever worked at. And they put like fennel pollen in their pork meat balls. And I like, I was like, wow, I didn't, you know, like there's little things you learn, but it was more just like learning how people operated and what environments people operate well in and people and what environments they don't. I feel like there's like all this just nebulous knowledge that you cannot attain um, unless you're in that kitchen, like working with them day in, day out. Um, and I learned so much under Chef Matt there um, and then ended up uh, a couple years later working at uh, Dominique Crenn's Atelier Crenn and learning a lot of mm. their practices. So I've just been trying to like expand my knowledge of how how those kitchens are run. And I have lots of feelings about the fine dining world. I know that people see it as a marker of, you know, it's a proxy basically of like success or a proxy of like mm-hmm. uh, accreditation. Um, but there's just, it's, um, and I also, so I guess my longer stint was I was at a Terra in New York. And so like, I just, I don't know. I like, I feel like because I was taking on roles where I was also like interacting with the customer, I just realized that the way how hard people in the back work is never really understood by 
people who are dining there, and it, it, I don't want to say everyone, but in a lot of fine dining aspects, um, and you're working these 14-hour days, getting paid very little for someone's, like, throwaway Tuesday meal. Like, literally, we had a couple who was so wealthy, they could come and splurge at a Terra for uh, every week on Tuesdays, they would come in for $300 per person meal for just food. And they would leave their wine half drunk. And, like, I don't think they did it on purpose to, like, spite us or our something. But it was just more like there's just something wrong here. Um, and I just yeah. get over that. So, anyway, I've been ruminating about that for years now. Um, but, like, how, like, what? Did, did somebody someone... drink the rest of that glass? Yeah. Because, okay. like, <laughs> yes. Because I, I have such an aversion to food waste that that would my brain would not stop sparking if I saw that. Happen. Oh my god! It was an eight. Was it? It was a above like thousand dollar bottle of white wine. Interestingly, um, and they didn't they drink like maybe two glasses out of the bottle? Just left. It was crazy. I mean, we drank it. It's fine, but like it was crazy. And there's like something wrong if if there, we have a system that that literally caters to these people that literally cannot you know keep. Our, our back of house people fed properly and housed properly and they're stressed the hell out. And like I was talking to our um, dishwasher porter once and he was, he was like the nicest guy. And he was like, yeah, every night I take two hours to get back home. And I'm like, think about this. This guy is working so many hours and he has a two hour commute. And these people, like, it's just, yeah, yeah. It was, yeah, it was a lot. No. I, I I have this vision that when all when you know things come back and it remains to be seen what comes back that there is that the porter goes I know they're too busy to do this but goes around to every table and everybody has to meet the porter because yeah. this is the person who makes your meal happen because everything would crash if mm-hmm. they were not mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. I, I I it's it's so. Im- important and and I just I have this vision um you know I know open kitchens are are a thing but like it in a cosmetic way and I I just I really really want people in the dining room to see the labor and the humanity Mm -hmm. of the the people back there yeah you know I could go off for hours about this like how you know during all of this haven't gotten government assistance haven't gotten Mm -hmm. all of these things because you know uh all kinds of broken systems and uh, you know, it's yep. it's just so galling. Yeah, I you know, fine dining. Uh, I'm very curious to see where this goes. And I I've been um, I spent part of this morning uh, trying to articulate my thoughts about the coronavirus uh, amuse bouche at uh, Alinea. Oh, and my feelings about that, <laughs> and uh, and the kind of people who are being fed uh, by that. And yeah, sorry to go on a tangent there. It's just been really weighing on me this morning. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's such a fascinating thing. So are, are you still doing stages at, at, well, obviously not right now, but uh, when is the last time that you did one? Yeah, so my last stage was at Atelier Clan 2017, and I wanted to okay. this year. Um, I, in LA, I was thinking of I may be going to dialogue, um, but I or vespertine, but I haven't been able to obviously. But we'll we'll see how that goes. I'm like kind of in, intrigued by. It's a very I would say like L A is very different than what I expected it to be. I think a lot of New Yorkers see like it's like the West Coast version of New York, um, and it's. 
And um, I like, it's a very, it, I mean, it's a similar vibe I and mean, it's still fine dining, but I do think their dishes are interesting and I would like to like learn about how, you know, people think, uh, people there think about putting flavors together. I think that's the most valuable lesson for me to learn, but it's always, it's an emotional labor to say like, I'm going to go into that environment voluntarily for like a month or a few months because I know you're just going to be treated badly. Um, and that shouldn't be, like those two things shouldn't be synonymous with each other, but that's just kind of the reality, at least that what I've experienced, unfortunately. Um, so I'm, I'm also like evaluating, maybe I shouldn't be stodging at these places at all. So, like maybe I should go stodge somewhere else, um, but other places don't really have a formal system for that. And that's the whole thing to talk about too, is why is it that fine dining has a, this system of basically free labor, but nobody else does? Um, and what does that mean? And why do we accept it constantly? It's okay for, you know, a place that has three stars to have 30 free stages in there too. Um, so yeah, I am like, yeah, I'm also totally complicit in the system. And I think about that too a lot. It's, uh, I mean, it's been an incredibly eye opening thing because, uh, you know, as these places have attempted to reopen, you can't not think about the safety of everybody involved in this, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's back of house and front of house and how nobody has healthcare and there, it's such tight and close quarters. And I, I wrote a piece this week about how I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not ready to even go outdoor dining. I'm way too anxious for that. And uh, I had written about my favorite neighborhood restaurant that I've been going to since 2004. And it was, you know, a love letter to them and how much I miss them. And I've been getting takeout and carryout from them. And I wrote specifically about the bartender there who I've now known for years. And she responded Aww. to it. And uh it was real. I love her, Angela Waterhouse. I love <laughs> you, and she she works there and at the Ear Inn. And she responded, and she's like, you know, this is how I feel about restaurants mm -hmm. too. And, and that's the thing, like it, it's you know, there there's so much there's so much risk, and I don't want to go back to a place where people are undervalued and put at at risk mm -hmm. uh, for the careless pleasure mm -hmm. of people. Uh -huh. And and I. Th think there's a, a real reckoning point there. And so I want to, I want to get to the place where we're talking about how you started doing all of the writing that you are about this and all of the work and all the toolkits that you have done at uh, Studio Tao, because what you have done there is so actionable. And it's like both on the parts of, you know, of restaurants, food media, diners as well. And it's all about, you know, challenging all of these, you know, invisible biases that all of us have that, uh, you know, it's your, your work has been really valuable to me to help me, you know, reckon with and, you know, and challenge, you know, beliefs that I had and centering myself in various mm -hmm. ways and really made me think, you know, what do I need to do differently? And so, you know, thank you for all of the labor that you've been doing there. How did you start to put this together, put it to, you know, put it to words, put it to screen and put it out yeah, there? Yeah, it was definitely a process. I mean, I originally started as a, like a pop-up series, just like in my apartment. I wanted to get people together. Slowly, we were able to turn that into more of like outside our house. Um, and with that, like, I've always wanted people to be able to be vulnerable. That's kind of a hallmark of what we do. Like, how do we get people to really be themselves? And 
if you want other people to be vulnerable, you have to be vulnerable yourself. You know, people will always kind of take your lead. And I slowly over the years recognized, like, I wasn't really being vulnerable with the food I was putting out. I mean, I like to think they were all tasty and everything, but um, I wasn't really digging deep because I didn't want to deal with all of that. You know, there's so much stuff. So what do you so what does that mean to you about being vulnerable uh, with your food? What does that look like? Yeah. To you? Um, so, for example, like I um, did a project in Nicaragua where I was like taking food at this hotel for some of the hotel guests as like a special like dinner. And I, while I was there, was like dealing with this like appropriation appreciation thing of like just yes, cooking, but also tourism in general. Like, how do you be good, be a good tourist? Um, like, and I don't have an answer for that. I think the travel industry is doing its own reckoning right now. But those are like a lot of questions. That I was mm-hmm. like, hey, am I actually doing more harm than good to like make a version of their trace leches cake, but like put a twist on it? Like, is that like, is that a problem? You know, and I feel like I wasn't really addressing a lot of those questions in my food. I would just put it out there and be like, oh, like this was inspired by this time that I went to Nicaragua. And that was it. Instead of being like, this is something that was it was inspired by a time that I went down there for a project, but I was also grappling with like these issues. Is it okay that I use this word to describe this sauce? Is it proper? You know, those are questions that I wanted the diners to have. But I also wanted to explore a little bit more of my own background or just being you know, uncomfortable many times coming up in the industry, yes, as a female, as a young Asian woman who's not taken seriously, but also like many times that that wasn't just from men and it wasn't just from white men. A lot of that insecurity was also developed from like of many of the Asian communities I've been part of. There's a lot of, I mean, we're doing a salon series about right now, this right now, there's a lot of scarcity mentality in our communities, especially people of color, and how that's affected me over time. And how like my parents, who also very much have a scarcity mentality, has like, you know, implemented that in our household in problematic ways over uh, my childhood. And my parents and I are back on good relationships, but those are, those are just like, there's a lot of feelings there. And I really wasn't putting that out there, um, in my food for a very long time. And reckon, like, and as a result, I feel like when we ask other people to be vulnerable, like, how could they really be? Um, we were doing things like giving name cards where instead of your name, we would ask you a question. And the question was, would be something like, um, what's your biggest failure and how did that, you know, like shape you know, how you see failure today. Um, and people, some people... God, I love to some people. I love talking about failure. Yeah. And some people had really great answers, but then when they showed up, I feel like I didn't deliver. You know, like they were vulnerable on this name yeah. tag for unknown purposes. And like, I show up and I serve them, what? Like some noodles? Like, you know, I just like, I had to, you know, uphold my end of the bargain. So that kind of when I went on this, this like introspective journey, like shut down all our operations for a while, I was like, what do I want to talk about? I mean, and as um, the director of Parasite, like said, I guess so accurately, was like, what is um, personal is the most creative, I think, I'm paraphrasing. And it's true, like the first project that Studio Tao formally took on was our exhibition dinner series called Asian in America. And that's like a very personal mm-hmm. project of like, what I do, how I felt growing up Asian American, what that means. And it's been like, that has helped me think through like, what do I actually, what, what's the space I want to occupy in um, the food industry? And what do I want the studio to do for mm-hmm. the food industry? And I think the 
the main goal is like, how do I be open people's eyes to different perspectives and things that we need to tackle? Um, and I did, definitely didn't make that connection for a while. We were just supporting Asian America doing that as an event. And it wasn't until like late last year, we started working on like, hey, how do we want to do more of like a think tank approach where we're tackling bigger issues like tokenization? Because those are things that are related to what I was talking about in Asian America, but I wasn't like formally, you know, codifying it into anything. It was just like, these are my feelings in a dinner. But like, how do, if we want the industry to move forward, what are the steps that we can do to help you know, maneuver that um, and how to actually shape the rest of the industry. So now we're kind of in that stage of like how to be a thought leader, how to bring the right people together to have this conversation, how to hold people both privately and publicly accountable. Like what are what are our options for doing so? So has there been a, a what was the road to getting a uh, attention and eyes and taken seriously while while you were doing this how was there any were there any barriers to being uh, sort of recognized and valued while you were putting this work yeah i mean i'm obviously very happy to see how um receptive people have been to the tokenization toolkit but we had done that the the initial experimental salon or the discussion um that led that led into the toolkit um that we use as kind of the foundation for the toolkit in February. And the toolkit, I think, launched in April. So, like, it it gained a little bit of traction, but I don't really think it, like, it something happened and then there, there was track more, way more eyes on it. Um, but we weren't necessarily, like, in charge of that. And so that is always the thing that mm-hmm. makes me nervous is, like, it, it is really on the whims of people who have more influence on the industry if they decide to listen or not. Mm-hmm. And we, honestly, like, we just put it out in social media. I tagged writers and editors um, that I knew that I hoped would look at it, you know, and maybe proliferate it. But, like, I don't know, something, somebody must have shared it, and suddenly it kind of, like, had its second awakening where it really seemed to have blown up, which is amazing. But, again, like, I didn't directly do that. So, I'm sure, like, we're now trying to make sure that we utilize this enthusiasm and, like, really take more steps forward. So um, what I'm hoping to do, as we've talked about, is like bringing editors together for some private conversations um, and talk about like implementation guidelines. Because right now the toolkit has a lot of, I think, personal guidelines. If you are an editor, if you're a gatekeeper, do XYZ. But what about implementation for the whole company? And what we'd like to do is um, like a one-year case study on a couple different companies. So we would like check it with them every month mm-hmm. The, like have KPIs that we agree on and then at the end of next year like write a case like a white paper about these two one or two companies that have decided to embark on this journey of like making their systems more equitable and not tokenizing people so like now that there is like I'm just like okay this is great we're getting traction so like how can we you know use it for the greater good of everyone how can I not let the momentum stop so that it just turns into like it's great that it's there and people are reading it but how do we enforce that people are doing something about it instead of just thinking and i want to go into uh, some of the the meat of what it is but i i would if you don't mind would you define some terms for me just because i think it's really valuable to have this stuff stated out there so people understand it because and often there's a lot of confusion over what does this really mean i want to talk about appropriation appreciation and tokenizing yeah. and uh sort of 
definitions for how you have, how have you defined Yeah, this? so, okay, let me pull up. I um, did a tokenization um, panel for MoFAD and... It was so good. It was oh, so good. You. And um, we talked a little bit at the beginning about like making sure people understood the difference between tokenization and appropriation. I would say like tokenization kind of like falls into the appropriation camp. But in the toolkit, how we can we define uh, tokenism or tokenization, we use the Wikipedia definitions, which I think is pretty good. And we have a supplemental one from Miriam Webster. Um, the practice of making only a perfunctory or symbolic effort to do a particular thing, especially by recruiting a small number of people from underrepresented groups in order to give the appearance of sexual or racial equality within a workforce, or I think in food media, like the appearance of equality and representation in both like who is being written, who and what is being written about, as well as who and what is doing the writing. Um, and then from Miriam Webster, it's the policy of practice of making only a symbolic effort as to desegregate, um, which I think also definitely makes sense. Um, in terms of appropriation, I had one in here. I need to find it. One. <laughs> this is, it's definitely one where I see so much pushback on from chefs who get really huffy uh, about this because they, you know, why can't I make what I want? And you've been wonderful about addressing this on social media. And I think, uh, I think that your most recent post on Instagram really addresses this about, you know, why can't I just make the food that I want? And uh, I just, I just really liked that a lot. Wait, so, okay, I did find it. Um, this is a definition we used at um, the MoFAD panel about appropriation. The adoption of elements of one culture by another, especially in cases where a dominant culture exploits aspects of a, minor, of a minority culture outside of its original context or at the expense of the original culture for personal gain. Um, and I think that's like, I think that's like relatively inclusive of like different ways of, to, uh, of appropriating different things. I think what's tough is that when many people hear the word appropriation, they feel personally attacked if they're cooking, you know, a different culture's food because they also worked really hard. I mean, there's an interview with Andy Bricker where he says, like, well, I deserve to profit off, you know, Thai food because, like, I've also worked really hard in opening the restaurants and maintaining them. And the restaurant industry is a difficult industry. And someone also commented on my post saying more or less the same thing is, like, well, there's also, like, you know, for all the white men who have restaurants, they also have to work really hard. And I think that's, like, the nuance of the conversation that oftentimes we don't seem to get into or maybe we don't want to get into because it's complicated is that like yes everyone in this industry is working really hard no one says that because you're a white man you haven't made and obviously all white men are not the same either they come from different backgrounds and have different social connections and even if you're a wealthy white man you don't have it made but it's just that you don't have additional things thrown in your way because of all the other you know societal things you have to deal with and you're you don't feel the pressure of having to represent this food in a very specific way. Like there's a lot of added pressure, I think, on, you know, uh, people of color who are cooking foods of their own background that they have to represent all of India, all of Korea. You know, you're only oh. you're the only Korean person allowed to write about Korea. Like, you know, you're the big one. So then 
there's so much pressure on you, and we don't put that pressure on white chefs who are cooking Mexican food. There's, uh, there, I'm sure we're both looking at the same Twitter threads <laughs> yeah. about this right now too. Uh, uh, Nick Sharma, uh, actually, I'm trying to remember who started the com- this particular Twitter thread uh, about, and I've talked with a lot of my friends who are representing their own particular experiences as, say, like Indian American or whatever culture that they happen to come from. And they're encountering a lot of pushback from people from their own culture because you didn't do it the way my auntie did. You didn't do it the way, you know, so-and-so did. But I I think this, I mean, granted, I have no solutions to this, but I, I feel like if there were more people out there who were able to, you know, be empowered to have their voice out there, then all the pressure wouldn't mm-hmm. be put on the one who got to do this thing. And that's got, and the level of exhaustion that I have seen from friends of mine in that it's, it's emotionally exhausting. It is uh, being capitalized to do things is so difficult. It's, it's just, it, it's a battle that again, like white chefs, white writers, uh, you know, et cetera, like really don't mm-hmm. run into a, as much. And, and I actually want to go back and define that term. You said mm-hmm. scarcity mentality, if you would define that. Please. Yeah. I mean, the scarcity mentality, we have it somewhere too, but I'll loosely define it as essentially this feeling that there's always, there's not enough and there's a finite amount of, you know, resources, um, to go around. So if anyone else has more of it, then that means you get less of it versus that it's something that can be regenerative and that there's going to be enough for everyone because we're constantly cultivating more resources and, you know, time and things that can go around to people. And I think many times, especially for immigrants and communities of color, the way that uh, the dominant class, you know, helps avoid people like essentially banding together is to cultivate a scarcity mentality of like, hey, you know, black Americans, look at those Asian Americans, Asian Americans, look at black Americans, like you guys are constantly in a fight against each other, um, because there can only be like one that's the good, like, as we talk about in the model minority myth, there's just the one good minority. And that means all the other minorities are bad. And in order to keep your good minority status, you also have to perpetuate anti-Black behavior. Um, and that is, I mean, that is so ingrained in the Asian American community that we're slowly trying to unravel. But it's a very powerful weapon of ensuring that people never feel like they should help each other, that they should never be looking out for anyone except for themselves or maybe the, the immediate group that they identify with. Mm-hmm. Thank you for defining that. Like it's really all of the tools that you have put together are so actionable. And I, and I was saying before this, like the way that like both, I mean, there are a lot of people out there who are doing incredible uh, things with their, their platforms right now, but I think like you do this, Ashton Berry does it uh, like tremendously yeah. well, where here are action points where you can, you know, do the work for yourself, but then extend the conversation. And so I want to talk about a post that you had made about having uh, these conversations with, with people in your sphere and sort of pledging mm-hmm to do so on a regular basis. And I want to sort yeah. of unpack that because I think there are a, a lot of people who are, you know, think like, you know, hey, you know, I, I want to get started on this or I've, you know, maybe been doing this for a while or something, but, you know, and hey, yeah, now is the time to push pa- uh, past discomfort or whatever and, and, and mm-hmm. do this. But um, can we talk through some of your action points about how to do this, who yeah. to decide to talk to and how to, you know, 
you know, how, how to do this and, and how to, you know, deal with the emotions around it? Yeah, I think, like, at least my personal theory of social change is that you it has to essentially be one by one, because it, you know, it's excruciating and it's so slow, but like having a deep connection with someone really like, un, like unraveling all of their predisposed, like, notions that just takes a lot of time that even if they watch even if they read a book even if they watch you know a ted talk about anti-racism it doesn't quite fix the problem and it just really does take like a personal connection and someone to it's not that it's the responsibility of that other person but someone to bring you along that journey i do think it takes like a personal touch and so with that especially as black lives matter really started to coalesce this year um around George Floyd, I was thinking about like, as an Asian American, what can I do about this? Because it's not my place to speak on behalf of black people. It's not mm -hmm. my place to go and be doing diversity training because black people should be doing that right now because they have a specific experience that, you know, we're talking about. But what can I do within my spheres of influence to help that cause? Um, and naturally, like I have lots of Asian American friends. I obviously operate in Asian American spheres with Asian in America as the experience that Studio Cal is well known for. Um, so what can I do within my Asian American friends? And Asian Americans do have a proximity to whiteness that we can't like pretend doesn't exist. White people mm -hmm. generally see us as safer, um, as like not really people of color, right? Like we have a higher social status. So like if I can have those conversations with the people that I know um, might have, you know, certain things about their um, worldview that needs to be addressed, then I feel like that conversation would probably go better than if they were to try and talk to their one token black friend because there's mm -hmm. there's a lot of tension there and, and also debatable if that token black friend should be carrying the burden of all of their white friends' problems. Um, so this, <laughs> this is kind of a, um, a shout to the Asian American community, but I think definitely for most minority communities, just to like think about where you have influence and what you can do and thinking about like Amy Cooper is also not, if she is one specific person, but she like mm -hmm. represents a big part of, I think, liberal and not necessarily just white, but like liberal culture where we might espouse certain values until it feels threatening to us. And then we fall back on all those racist tropes or socioeconomic classist tropes um, whenever we feel comfortable. And um, our book club that we did last month was Hood Feminism, where the author Miki Kendall talks about how oh, she's, so she's so great. She talks about how many times white women call the police because even though they know the patriarchy is bad because it makes them feel safe and it's like unraveling that. And when I had a conversation with a, a, a white friend of mine about this idea of Amy Cooper, you know, she was like, well, I, I'm not Amy Cooper. Like I don't identify with that specific mold of person, but I think Amy Cooper is more of like an ideological mindset that we tend to fall back into. And I am guilty of that too. You know, I think we're all yeah. definitely guilty of that. So like, how do we tackle that instead of saying like, Amy Cooper is a bad person because then it's so easy to distance yourself from her is yeah. instead being like, what parts of Amy Cooper can I see in myself and having, being able to have that conversation with your friends and family. Yeah, it's, it is a, you know, it is a really, really difficult thing to think like, you know, when have I perpetuated the stuff that, you know, I was, I was taught that I accepted 
And, you know, how have I enacted that in my own life? And, you know, mm-hmm. feeling, and the thing is like, shame is not enough. Like feeling the shame of it is, you know, not nearly enough. Like, yes, have that reckoning, uh, like, you know, with yourself and, you know, make amends where it would be useful. Like don't open anybody's wound on, 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 on that. Like nobody owes you forgiveness on anything. Like mm-hmm. that is the thing. Mm-hmm. Like if you hurt someone, they don't have to forgive you. Like they really yep. don't. Yep. And, yep. and sometimes it's sort of an, a selfish act to go to somebody and say like, oh, I'm sorry, I, I did this thing for you. Cause like, why are you don't no, don't put that right. on me because then like right. don't put the burden of that on me. But then also like taking opportunities right. to figure out like where do I need to just like not accept the status quo and mm-hmm. go along with that. It can be really uncomfortable. I know that, you know, it's you know, with I I love my in-laws very, very deeply. And if you're listening to this, sorry to bring this up, but like I, 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 you know, I, but at the, at the same point, I think they're, you know, willing to hear it um, because I, I know that they've been doing the work. Um, you know, I have a, you know, a male in-law who was playing this song that he thought was really funny about how, you know, hey, everybody has to be all PC and, you know, mm-hmm. we have to call them all these specific names. And, and I was just like, I'm sitting here in this moment and it's the holidays and, you know, I could really stand to fill up my bourbon glass right now. And <laughs> I could just let it go. But I was just like, you know what? I, I and I, it's going to make everybody uncomfortable, but I have to say something. And I looked at him and said, "Like, why is this funny to you?" And mm-hmm. he was like, "Well, listen to it." And then I said, "And the thing I came up with was, you're better than that." Mm-hmm. And with him, how do you argue with that? Like, how do you not examine that that in yourself? Like, am I am wait, am I better than this? Because like, he's mm-hmm. a wonderful man who, like, in a lot of ways, who goes to church, who uh, you know. Does you know sort of all of these things, but he was raised, uh, you know, as my husband was by a white supremacist father, mm-hmm. and has had a lot of unlearning to do. And you know, and I kept this moment, and in my heart, sort of, I held it against him for a while, until recently. I was. Uh, this was really important to me to hear this evolution. He, he, and my husband got on a phone call and talked about how they were brought up. He's a lot older than my husband. He's like 17 years older than my husband. And, but about growing up in that household and what it taught them to implicitly accept. And the fact that now his church group, and he's in his, he's 70, I think. Yeah, he just turned 70. They're doing Black Lives Matter work now. Wow. And, he, and he understands uh, you know, all of this. And, you know, he's always worked with his church group a lot. So, but the fact that like the words Black Lives Matter coming out of his mouth were mm-hmm. uh, a huge hope to me. He's a man who lives in the South, who was ingrained in this culture and he's he's doing that. And I was like, I, this was uh, a moment of evolution that I didn't anticipate would ever come. He's not somebody who was, a, you know, a flag waving, you know, wh- whatever it was. He's a good man. Mm-hmm. Um, but to I- have that was really important. I also think that many times, like, because privilege is also, like, being able to be ignorant, sometimes not because you want to be, just you didn't even notice. Like, I one yeah. of part of the conversation that I had um, with someone was about the, some of the photos in one of her friends' houses, which is a very nice house um, in L.A., and it was, like, this photo of a man who um, is an older, like, I think, like, factory worker or something sort that she had purchased in Morocco. And it's, like, very National Geographic vibe, you know, high contrast, super, super high detail. Um, and it's this, like, old, weathered factory worker. And she has it hanging in this room. And it's, like, this weird, exotic 
thing. And, you know, I, and there's like a lot of questions there of like, did this man get compensated for getting his photo taken? Um, mm-hmm. How much did you pay for this photo? Who was selling it? Why do you have it here? What are you trying to like, what, like, why do you find, what, what's your connection to this? And why do you find it interesting? And God, like, you know, um, because that, makes people feel uncomfortable in a certain way and like mm-hmm. but these these are just things that maybe someone just didn't think about and i'm not excusing that but it's like you had the privilege to never have that never cross your mind because you know to you morocco is beguiling and it's like you know it's exotic but people in that area they're like no this is like a place that i go to so just being able to even have to even like have a conversation where you recognize that you're um point of view isn't the only one um, has been maybe the first step in some of these conversations recently of like just because you've never experienced racism just because you never experienced x doesn't mean that it doesn't exist and somehow that's mm-hmm. also been like a little controversial sometimes but i i think that people are starting to listen more or at least they say they want to i don't know if that will lead to any long-term change but they're saying that they want to address this I mean, that's that's been an interesting thing, again, why I keep going back to your social media, again, because I think you've done such a really great job with with all of this. And I, you know, and I've been, uh, you know, there's there's an explosion of social media right now. And and I've been sort of looking at it a lot. Why I like yours in particular and why I like Ashton's and why I like various other people's uh, work is that it's actionable. And there's sort of this gulf right now to me where i i think i still need to examine this for myself or uh you know what is allyship what, what is real allyship what is performative and what is yeah. actionable and there's a lot of you know statement putting up there's a lot of so and i've been thinking like should i you know where do i stand on this and i i sort of I've mostly been trying to amplify voices that, cause I, you know, I have a decently big platform. I've been trying to do this, but I was like, does the world need my own statement on things? And I was like, other people have been doing work for a really, really long time. And, you know, and it's always just a thought of like, do I want to, like, what is more valuable kind of the conversations that I'm very much having in private with people versus like putting out like mm-hmm. some sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And it's just something you don't have to answer this for me because I'm trying to work it out for myself. And, but like, I'm, I'm curious to see where you're, how you're feeling about how people are using all of this right now. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely something I'm struggling with too, is like, well, um, should I be the one who's like writing this sort of stuff? Or like, I think the main question is like, what am I putting out there that's like actually additive to the conversation yeah. versus like, am I yeah. just regurgitating information? Um, am I just like putting a statement that is really self-serving out there that just makes me feel better? Like many, so many companies are like, oh, like, you know, Black Lives Matter, but then like they haven't really done anything about it. So like, it, what, what am I, what am I doing? Where do I fit into that? And how do I, make sure that I'm learning along the way because I definitely have made plenty of mistakes or just didn't recognize parts of my privilege so I definitely don't think I have an answer what I have found helpful is just constantly like reevaluating. like if I'm going to post x thing like has someone else posted about this and I can just repost their thing or mm-hmm. do I like what exactly is so why do I why do I think my point of view is special um, and mm-hmm. obviously it's hard to like untangle that from your own ego because of course my point of view is special, um, but trying <laughs> to be more objective of like, is this actually really additive? Um, I guess uh, the example that I was thinking about 
when for the studio two weeks ago or a week ago, we put out um, a social media post about respectability politics. And we had read yes. so many posts about respectability politics. And I was really thinking to myself, like, do we need to do this post at all? Is um, We also did one about intent versus impact, of which also I think everyone has seen a lot of. And I was talking to my team internally as like, should we even have this post? What are we bringing to the table? And we basically, the three of us worked on it for two weeks to put together this post that I feel does address something that is often overlooked in the realm of respectability politics, which is that there's like two separate things. There's respectability politics and then respectability narrative, which... Could, respectability, could you explain the term? Respectability politics is this idea that using respectability narratives is a good way to promote um, societal legal change on some level, just like a small or big change. And respectability narratives is the idea of um, showing that m marginalized identities of some variety, whether that's you know women, whether that's uh, LGBTQ, like these people that are marginalized share similar morals, values, traits, ideals, with the with a dominant class. So, for example, um, one of the uh, pieces that we reference a lot is this piece about how Chinese uh, people were, you know, they were excluded from immigration, and when they wanted to get immigrate, uh, when they wanted to get citizenship status, um, the big advocates for them started showcasing to, you know, mostly the white men in government at that time how Chinese immigrants and Chinese people also shared a lot of you know, the same values that white people did. They work hard, they do this, they do that, and therefore they should be granted citizenship. Um, and advocates for DACA do a similar thing where it's like, hey, many times we're told that undocumented immigrants are, you know, sucking the financial aid out of this country. And advocates for DACA will show that DACA, you know, recipients are obviously like they're usually well, uh, well educated, you know, they're financially stable, they do this, they're contributing to the economy. So I think many times when we think about respectability politics, it's about like victim blaming, like girls should not wear tight dresses because, you know, then they'll get raped. Um, but I think there's like a whole bigger picture here of Many times respectability politics has been useful in that it does merit change. It does help with change because the dominant class sees X minority as similar to them and that they're more willing to give them rights. However, that still has an underlying problem where we've accepted that whatever the traits that the dominant class cares about are the right ones and everybody needs to fit into them to be considered worthy. And that is a reason to then change legally, socially, in um, to help the minority class. So I think there's like a lot of layers to unravel and I didn't want to paint accessibility politics as always bad, even though like you can argue it is problematic in many ways, but that doesn't mean sometimes it's been effective. And like, like with everything, there's just a lot of nuance and complications um, within it. And I felt like that was an idea that was worth for us to talk about specifically because I didn't feel like at least on social media, people were quite um, painting that as thoroughly as possible. I mean, if you read the entire dissertation about respectability politics and citizenship, you would understand it, but arguably just like it's harder to get people to do that. So I felt like we could contribute something. And anyway, it was a back and forth conversation, but I do feel like we added something to that conversation versus just saying the same thing on slightly different colored slides.
Yeah, it it, it uh, what you came up with, I think, is really useful and 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 actionable. And it's you know, and it's a thing where you you know, I think it's a really good discussion starter, like with oneself, and but then also like you know, in in these communications, because I think people, okay, white people, uh, we're we're brought up to uh, sort of fetishize our own comfort and avoid mm-hmm. discomfort, and so. Having guardrails, you know, for for baby steps for for this kind of stuff is, you know, a, a gift and that I thoroughly appreciate because you know it's, you know, we are, uh, you know, get white people swaddled swaddled little babies in a lot of ways because we have not been you know brought up with this uh, particular thing. And hospitality too. I think I was having um, a conversation with Soleil about this um, for a piece. Is like. Our definition of hospitality in this industry is, uh, in our, in this country is very specific and it's not always the same definition abroad. And so when we go to like restaurants that might be from a different culture, like why do we evaluate everyone on the same basis of hospitality? Um, and why, why is there such a niche term for what hospitality means or what good service is? Um, and those are like things to, that we all need to kind of examine collectively. It's, a, it's sort of this default French thing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, my, my colleague Kushbu Shah has been, mm-hmm. uh, since, since day one, has been saying, I want to unpack why we have decided that this sort of French system is the end-all be-all and can it take a break for a while? And I am, uh, she's got so much work on her plate, but I know that that is something that she very much uh, wants to explore, like how, you know, how that happened, how we accepted that this is, this is the particular way, Madame and Monsieur, would you, you know, it's, when, in you know, in in reality, it makes a lot of people super uncomfortable. Like, I think that the restaurants that I've been most uncomfortable in are sort of schmancy ass like mm-hmm. French places, like these mm-hmm. high end things that are sort of designed to, you know, I walk in and I'm like, they're going to know that I went to a state school. Like, <laughs> you know, I'm like, you know, I walk in, they're going to know I'm from Kentucky. They're gonna, and then thinking like, yeah. but these aren't, these are things I am not ashamed of. Why is this making me feel ashamed of? Oh my God, do I have some internalized shame about it? Like, mm-hmm. do I have to confront this over my Pike Canal? Like, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm, and I'm thinking if, if, you know, me who has a lot of privileges, like feeling this way, like, oh my God, those, spe- those spaces then are super inaccessible mm-hmm. to like other, other people. Like, why are we choosing this? And I, mm-hmm. and I mean, there is nothing good about this pandemic. It is, it is brutal in uh, 30 bazillion different ways. And the only, you know, anything that I can see come out of it is that maybe we come out of it with a hospitality model that is based in valuing both the workers and then what really, and and re-examining what, uh, like, what hospitality and comfort and service Mm -hmm. really are and, Mm -hmm. and how it can be mutually beneficial. And like, the only, you know, I, I think, you know, that's, uh, you know, I'm lucky I'm in a position in media where I can sort of like yell about that a lot. <laughs> but uh, I, I think a lot of people want things to just go back to how it was and it just, it can't. It can't. Yeah. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about that is like everybody keeps saying like, oh, the restaurant model's broken. I mean, it's been broken for a long time. And right now, I guess is, I'm glad that we're all in agreement now and want to fix it. But like there's like a model and then the model feeds into like a bigger purpose of restaurants. And I feel like we've all kind of just accepted that the purpose, you know, the 
there's people can say that restaurants serve a lot of purposes, but like purpose of most for-profit restaurants right now is like to concentrate money and power to the owners, like to constantly flow, you know, in a in a certain direction. And we can see that obviously the model doesn't serve that purpose. But if we want to fix the model, we should also be thinking about how do we fix the purpose of restaurants? Like what are what do restaurants serve for us? Should restaurants just exist to try and, you know, be a capitalist system where, you know, the small portion of owners gets as much money as possible, which sometimes they don't get a lot of either? Um, or should we be thinking about, like, how do we make restaurants purpose be also regenerative in some way? What does that look like? And fix the model with it. I think that's like, you know, not like I figured it out, but I've been thinking about like those two aspects of how we can't, I hope that we, when we eventually quote unquote fix our broken restaurant model, it isn't just to serve the same purpose as before. So if you, sorry to put you on the spot here, if you opened a restaurant, Mm -hmm. what would it look like? What, What would that look like? Yeah, I've always struggled with this question because um, I have had people approach me and offer to help me open a restaurant. Um, and I've always said no, because I just, I don't know how I would structure it so that it's like ultimately helpful for the community. I think like knowing what I know now, um, I obviously run a nonprofit and nonprofits are not perfect. But I do think that if I were to open like a, like a brick and mortar food service, I would also run it as a nonprofit. Um, and have it function where it's like maybe like a tiered sort of thing where you can pay as you can um, for cert- like for most of the menu. And there are certain special like nights where things are free or there's certain special nights where, you know, donors can pay a lot of money and that they're paying excess of what, you know, it costs to make that food so that the restaurant can make a profit that it can hold and redistribute later. I would really want to set up a system where like we can set the bar in how much people are getting made in that uh, getting uh, paid in the back of the house because it doesn't really make any sense that, you know, executive chefs are making 60k a year at their peak. Um yes, I know that's still above like the minimum like the average household wages um in the US, but at the same time you're asking for 15, 20 years of experience of a person and should they be making that much, especially in a big city like LA or New York where 60K doesn't get you very far and then they have to make these compromises on their standards of living. Like I just don't know how to get a system that all of those incentives would actually be aligned and which is why I haven't opened a restaurant because I don't know how to align the incentives. <laughs> like the incentives right. always seem to be I don't think they necessarily are at odds with each other, but they're just not ever aligned. And uh, yeah, I don't like, I don't know if there's a way to do it um, in, in, I guess, our current model of capitalism in the U.S. Maybe that's like the really the bigger issue. Um, I don't, I don't <laughs> know actually if that, that's possible. That is the underlying factor of everything. And, and follow up question to this. Can I come stage for you? <laughs> can I, I'm like, I think I'm, I would so happily because I'm sitting here thinking like, do I just go become a therapist? Like I don't know, like reevaluating every choice in my life currently, like oh. during 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 all of this stuff. And um, I I just I really I, I really really you know value what what you're doing. I think it's it's on so many levels, and I think it's so important. And I actually did have one other question because you brought this sort of up before you were talking about 
sort of being taken seriously when you don't have you know, particular like restaurant experience or something. What I've been seeing some of is, especially during this this time when chefs, restaurant chefs are, are not at their restaurants, they're cooking from their homes and serving people that way. There are more and more home cooks who um, you know have been cooking all along and, and they're doing really valuable work. Do you think we will come to value more people in the food world who are not restaurant chefs? Yeah, I think that it's really important that we diversify what we believe is like a chef and what a restaurant is. And I think Kushku did a really good job with this year's list um, because there was a lot of non-traditional models on there and kind of giving them the credence of like, you guys are worthwhile and deserving of this, you know, best new restaurant title too. And hopefully with that changes public perception of what a quote unquote chef is. Because, you know, just because you've worked at, for 10 years at a restaurant doesn't also make you, like, the best chef. Like, I think, like, at, like, it's like graduating from an Ivy League institution, right? It's just a proxy to something. But we've made that proxy so um, specific in our industry that, like, we can't kind of impact it. We haven't. And that by its very nature, because it's a proxy, it's not exact. And it's a very, very limiting on, like, the kinds of people it'll accept. So I think it'll be really important. What I'd like to see is people accepting a wider version of what a chef means so that if someone tells you they're a chef, it's not just like, what restaurant do you work at? It's like, what kind of, you know, what's your philosophy on food sort of thing? Um, and also, I hope that we start taking more seriously the kinds of people that are putting out food content so that they do have food experience. Um, and that doesn't have to be a chef, right? But they have food experience and they have like a, particular philosophy and worldview on food and it's not just like whatever gets the most clicks because I think there is problems with the fact a lot of influencers a lot of food bloggers who don't really have the food background and they're not incentivized to really care because you know like it's just about numbers and we shouldn't be putting so much power in those sort of people either like I I think it yeah I need to be like a change on both ends. And I want people to read Jenny's incredible article on this topic <laughs> on food and wine, because you dove deep on, on influencers <laughs> for this. And it, yes. it's such a valid question. And, uh, and, you know, and I know, you know, as a person you know, in, in media with some, uh, you know, control over, you know, who and how and what is, is featured, it, you know, I need to, you know, constantly ask myself, why are we writing about this person or this system or this p- particular thing? Mm-hmm. Who, you know, who am I asking to come on this podcast? Who, uh, you know, who, yep. who am I retweeting? Who am I, you know, spending my dollars with, you know, who, who am I, you know, who, who am I amplifying? Who am I, you know, who is the writer out there who is too scared to come to me because if they see food and wine attached to me, you know, right. I do a better job about approaching them and say like, Hey, you have a story to tell me. Like, I, I know you do like, and you know, and I know it's scary because like before I worked at food and wine, I was too scared to pitch food and wine. You know, it was, right. you know, and if I come to it with, you know, some years in the business and I'm intimidated by that, you know, I've tried to be mindful about like thinking about how, you know, how scary that is. So, you know, I, I know that I can do a better job on, on all of those fronts and really like highlight the people who have been, they've been there the whole time. It's not like they're new, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and go those levels deeper to really um, explore that. And, and again, the work that you're doing is, is really, 
really useful for that. And are there some people who you would like to highlight who you feel like are doing an incredible job of like putting messaging out there? Um, I mean, you mentioned her already. Ashton's awesome. Everybody should definitely follow her, and her um, on Instagram. Oh, the Treacherous Waters uh, work is incredible as well. And uh, I'm, yeah, more people need to follow that. <laughs> we just did um, uh, an IGTV with her as well on, on the Studio account where she talked about the U.S. government. Um, and there's like the spheres of influence in the U.S. government, which was just, I mean, it was a really sad conversation in that it's just that there was a lot of systemic problems. So she talked about how yeah. the Electoral College has a lot of issues. Um, voter suppression, all of that. So highly recommend um, people check that out. Um, I really appreciate what um, Soleil is doing at The Chronicle. Everybody should definitely be reading about how she approaches, I think, critique. And like, just how, like, what, what kind of power do we give food critics? And why do we give them that? And what sort of responsibilities should we hold them to in how they see the city? Like she was just saying, like, Seeing the city through like a public transportation lens is very different mm-hmm. than in a bunch of Ubers all the time. Um, so I, I thought that was really, really interesting. Um, I'll shout out my old podcast I used to be a part of. That's um, it's called Why Food on Heritage Radio. Like uh, it's held by um, Ethan, who runs for Latin Barrel, and Valerie, who was the season three baking champion of um, America's great baking contest. I don't think I got that title right, but like, yeah, love that one. She, uh, just more people, she was robbed of her victory on that show. And, uh, um, for for folks who don't know the backstory, like they never aired it because a jackass, uh, judge had been accused of sexual misconduct. So they stole the whole season and her win got buried, but her book is going to come out next year and she will get the platform that she has long deserved. Yeah. And, um, I think for online or uh, physical, but also like online presence, um, Madison over at Girl Splash is doing really good work and like working to, you know, just even how she's dealing with like, I'm a white woman. How do I amplify different voices? I really appreciate what they're doing there. Um, and the Museum of Food and Drinks uh, has been doing really great work around their upcoming exhibition, which is about African-American cuisine and how it shapes American food. So like everyone should definitely to donate to them, help them like realize that exhibition because it's an important one that we need to talk about. And right now it's just like where they, yeah, they're trying to figure out where to open it. Yeah, that, that has been a heartbreak because it was supposed to already be open. I think by now, was it, I think it was supposed to open in June and they were doing so much work around it and they were doing, I think it was a GoFundMe or I don't remember if it's Kickstarter or GoFundMe to uh, basically preserve the, uh, the test kitchen from, uh, I'm trying to remember if it was, uh, was it the Ebony, it was the Ebony test kitchen. And it was uh, they, just the work, the labor, the love that has gone into this that I know Dr. Jessica Harris put into um, the exhibition is so powerful. And it, I really, really hope it still gets to see the light of day in the way that it truly deserves. Yeah, it's yeah, it's like a weird thing. I don't know where museums will end up out of this, too. Like, yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> And like, how should we see museums? Because they are also the art that is in museums is of one perspective as well. Like, are we going to challenge that and change that? 
Yeah. And, you know, again, I know that all of this is, you know, is labor and it's, you know, it takes time, it takes emotional space. And, and I, you know, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I am curious to know what you're going to do to take care of yourself today. Ooh, okay. So today I have, unfortunately, a lot of calls, but I am going to go um, do a meet and greet with a dog that I'm hoping to adopt. So I'm very excited about that. And then afterwards, my husband and I are going to go get some takeout um, from like a nearby place. It's like a vegan vegetarian local spot. That's really great. Um, and I think I'm in your camp where I'm still too anxious to eat out. So we've been like debating if we should like go try and sit on a patio, but I think we're going to go take out, come home, light a candle and relax. Good. And I hope that you come home with, uh, even if it's not today, four new paws in your house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dogs are too. I want this so much for you. And, and thank you so much for your time. If people, if people want to find you online, how can they do that? Um, yeah, you can find me. I'm most active on Instagram. I'm at Chef Jenny Dorsey, um, but I'm also on Twitter sometimes. And you can find uh, my nonprofit on Instagram at Studio Atal. That's A-T-A-O or studioatal.org. Thank you so much today to uh, my guest, Jenny Dorsey. Uh, you can find her on social at Chef Jenny Dorsey and through her project, Studio Atau. We will put the link uh, into the information for this episode. Anytime I listen to her speak or see the work that she is, is doing online, I come away with a better understanding and, and about what more people are, are going through and better ways to connect and listen in a in a more vulnerable and open kind of way and i'm so grateful for the work that she and other people are doing in this arena it's a, you know it's a whole lot of of labor and patience and it, it takes a lot to do that so i am greatly appreciative uh, of her and to the other people who are really putting themselves out there to make a better world it's it's vital. It's important. It's the only right thing to be doing right now if you're, well, in the world in general or in the food world or if you're in food media. These are vital conversations. And I really encourage people to go and look at the work that Jenny is, is doing and maybe bring it up with the people around you. Have that tough conversation. Have a you know, we can't really do it over food so much these days, but there are really ways to connect and truly looking forward to being able to do some of these conversations in person with people I love in the near future. So uh, again, thank you to Jenny for that. And also thank you so much to our new producer, Antara Sinha, who is just doing a bang up job is a pleasure to work with and we're 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 both learning together about how to navigate this in a new uh you know a new normal of society where uh we you know can't actually have that that regular connection and we're we're doing it via the internet and we're figuring it out but thank you so much to Antara and to Sarah Crowder who uh, comes up with the gorgeous photos that we use in all of these. And, you know, if you like this conversation, this is this is what we do at Food & Wine Pro, um, which is a the part of Food & Wine where we're really delving into the uh, aspects of, you know, what's going on in the world that apply to people who are in the restaurant world and trying to figure out 
what this is going to look like, what this future is going to look like, what this and how it what it means to reopen, what it means to really take a hard look at your business practices and decide here and now that um, moving forward is going to be better for for everyone. So if you want to look at what we were doing, we just have published a new reopening guide for restaurants. And uh, I will tell you, it's not just a shiny, happy, hey, we're open again. Here's how it goes. We're del- we're really, truly delving into the nitty gritty of um, the, the, the fear and the practicality and the ethics and the morality around all of this, um, dealing with with uh, your own staff and dealing with customers and trying to be just decent freaking humans to one another um, as we're navigating all of this. Um, our safety truly is in one another's hands uh, at this point. And, you know, we can take we can take the measures to take care of ourselves and also, most importantly, to uh, take care of each other. So. Um, these conversations are all happening at Food and Wine Pro, foodandwine.com slash fwpro. And while you're there, please sign up for the weekly newsletter that is uh, mostly written by our great editor-in-chief, Hunter Lewis, and uh, pinch <laughs> pinch it by me on occasion and, and some other folks too, including Osep Barber, our associate restaurant editor who does the heavy lifting on gathering all the news that you need for the week. Um, so, And there are uh, mantras and meditations from our uh, associate test kitchen editor, Kelsey Youngman, who is a certified meditation instructor. So we're bringing you the news you need, but also you know, giving some some calm, some insight, some solidarity, because we're all going through this together. So you don't have to do much. You just have to sign up and it'll come into your inbox, usually on Fridays at noon if we have our stuff together, Saturdays if we don't as much, but it's it's there for you. And I am really grateful. And for this podcast, I I'm so, thank you for listening to this. If you're listening to it and if you liked it, it really, really helps if you leave stars and comments wherever it is that you get your podcasts and or if you share it with a friend or somehow spread the word on social. Um, it's a, been a rough time for podcasts right now because people are out of their regular routines where they listen to podcasts and uh, you know, those those comments and those stars really, really help uh, other people listen to it. It means that we keep getting to do this and having conversations. And um, if there's somebody you think who we should be talking to, please let me know. Um, tweet at me, Kitten with a Whip on Twitter. You know, I'm, I'm easy to find on social. I'll just say that. I'm, and I'm also cat.kinsman at foodandwine.com. Drop me a note. Let me know what you want to hear about and who you would like to hear it from. And most importantly, take a breath. Right now, along with me, unclench your jaw, drop your shoulders, breathe, and take good care of yourself until the next time.